Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. We've got uh, all the naughty young people on the back seats at the back. They were the young people once. These are folks uh, of my in-laws' friends from their youth group days way back many, many years ago. And they're still the naughty young people, but it's great to have them with us. Great to have you all this morning. It's great, isn't it, just to come together and worship God together. There should be an outline on your seat if you find that helpful. I'll just be going through all the verses and the various points that we're looking at, and everything will be up on the screen as well. And there's pens in the seats if you want to make any notes or anything like that. Now, way back in 1993, if you can remember that that far, Hoover launched a promotion whereby if you bought a Hoover, you got two free tickets to the USA. Well, my parents had never been to the USA, uh, to the USA, and my church at the time needed a Hoover. So I thought, well, kill two birds with one stone. So I bought the church a Hoover, and I gave the two free tickets or the vouchers for the tickets to my parents. The problem was, if you remember that um, promotion, Hoover completely misjudged it, and they everybody in the UK went and bought a Hoover. So they, their Hoover sales went up, but they simply couldn't honour all these tickets. And so my parents, amongst many others, never actually got their tickets. But by this time, they'd got into their heads the fact that they were going to go to America. They'd never been to the States, and they wanted to do that. So they went ahead and bought their own tickets. And for various reasons that year, I hadn't had a holiday. I was living up here, uh, away from my parents down in the south. So my mum phoned. She said, look, why don't you tag along with us? You don't need to do anything with us. You go and hang out with your friends. We had a lot of friends in, in Washington, D.C. area. You go and hang out with them, but fly over with us. We'll do our thing. You do your thing, and we'll have a good time together which is what we did. And at that time, both my dad and I were both uh, serving customs officers. And so I thought, well, it'd kind of be cool whilst we're there if I could see if we could maybe do a tour of the uh, U.S. Customs headquarters in Washington, D.C. I used to have a quite a sad... Um, well, I'm just quite sad, but I used to have a quite a sad hobby of taking photographs of customs houses around the U.K. and in other places. Um, so I still have them if you're interested in them. Anyway, I got in contact with our U.S. liaison officer, and I asked her, look, any chance of maybe you know, getting us entry into the headquarters, a little bit of a tour of the building, something like that. Um, and she did just that. And in fact, she ended up doing way more than just a tour of the building for us. I got to Spain. I got to spend a day without my dad at Dallas Airport in Washington Airport, in, 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 in Washington, D.C., in the airport there. And I got to spend a whole day working alongside some U.S. Customs agents. Um, and then I spent a day without my dad down in Washington, D.C., in the Federal Triangle at the U.S. Customs Headquarters. That was me at 20. You can see the hair's gone a little bit. That's me in the middle there at 20 years old. But we thought what we were doing, so, we had a, so I had a great day working with these guys uh, at, at Washington uh, Airport. But then we went a few days later, went down into, into the Federal Triangle, went to the headquarters, and we thought we were just going to be doing a tour of the building. Somebody would just kind of show us around, take a, pitch, a few pictures, and then that would be kind of a cool day. But what we thought would be a tour of the building turned out to be a little bit more than that. Turned out, to, turned out to be a meeting with a guy called Special Agent Rick Strobel. And when we were going up in the lift or the elevator, as our American cousins like to call it, I asked him what his job was. Um, my dad, you have to understand, my dad is very shy. He's a very quiet man. He's not a kind of outgoing man. I couldn't be more kind of polar opposite to my dad. And my dad has spent most of his life telling me to be quiet or kind of tapping me under the table saying, shh, don't, don't say anything, just, just enough, you know. And so my dad was a little bit on edge, and I thought it was great, but, I, but my dad was a little bit on edge. We were going up in the lift, and I asked the guy, I said, so what is your job title? What is your job? I imagine he was just a kind of lowly guy. He says, well, I guess at the minute I'm chief of staff for intelligence operations for the whole of the U.S., like, oh, okay. And my dad just looked at me in utter horror in the lift. At the time, I was 20, I was an assistant intelligence officer, okay, roughly the equivalent to a detective constable in the police. I couldn't get any less junior if I, if I 
tried, okay? My dad was what we called a senior officer, which was roughly the equivalent of a chief inspector in the police, but he was a little bit more important than me, but, you know, in the big scheme of things, we weren't remotely on the same league as this guy, uh, chief of staff for intelligence operations for the whole of US Customs. And my dad just kept looking at me in horror, absolute horror, and a special agent, Rick Strobel, exited the lift ahead of us. My dad just snarled at me in a whisper, what on earth have you got me into here? He was absolutely horrified but it got worse this was just the beginning because chief of staff for intelligence operations rick strobel then informed us that we were going to have uh, spend the day and have a meeting with the director of u.s customs intelligence a guy called jake Corran, and there should be a picture of him coming up on the screen and, and so we got taken into his office we got sat at the, the, at the board table at the, the kind of head and we had this whole for several hours this bizarre and surreal discussion uh, in-depth discussion about U.S. customs and U.K. customs. And we sat there talking away, and my dad repeatedly kicked me under the table uh, to stop talking. And we discussed the challenges of international smuggling and international cooperation. And, uh, and, and, and he was talking to us as if we were somehow kind of the U.K.'s top experts in this field. And I don't know who they really thought we were, but we definitely weren't who they thought we were. That They were treating us as, as if we were the sort of... Uh, UK Customs top representatives come over for a meeting with the US, which we were definitely very much not there. We were just two pretty low-level officers, myself, I couldn't get any lower, who happened to be related, happened to be a bit sad, and thought on their holiday they'd go and have a tour of a customs headquarters. Maybe that was why the US-UK relationships, the special relationship, took a bit of a dip in the early 1990s. Well, it, it, it was an amazing experience, and we were treated like high-ranking representatives of the UK, which we most definitely were not. And regardless, we had our pictures taken. Special Agent Rick Strobel then took us out for lunch. We had this whole day. It was a crazy, surreal day. You know, if you're going to represent somebody, if you're going to represent something or, or someone, then you really need to have the authority to do so. You need to be qualified to do that, don't you? We were both totally and utterly out of our depth, and we were totally unqualified to be actors, acting as some kind of international liaison team between UK and US customs. The Bible teaches us that if and when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then he becomes our high-level representative. He, be, he becomes our kind of international liaison team between us and God in heaven. The Bible says that Jesus becomes our great high priest. And a priest is somebody who represents God to people and represents the people to God. He acts as an inter international liaison, if you like, between people and God and God and people. Jesus acts as our high priest. In fact, the Bible calls him our great high priest. He acts as a go-between between those who've trusted in him and God. He's our high-level representative between the two. And Jesus acts as that kind of high priest, that, that go-between between those who've trusted in him and those who have uh, come to know him and God himself. And here at Regent, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews at the moment on a Sunday morning. And we're working our way through Hebrews, and we've reached the part where the author talks about Jesus being our great high priest, if you like, our great representative, our, our liaison between heaven and earth, our liaison between God and us. Last week, we saw how Jesus does this, and we went into real kind of depth as we looked at Jesus acting as our high priest, understanding all our weaknesses, tempted in every way, just as we are, and so on. It's in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That was what we looked at last week. And, you know, God loved the world so much that despite our sins, despite our collective sin, despite our individual sin, all those ways in which we've tried to live without reference to God himself, doing things our way rather than doing things his way, despite all of our sin, God loves us. And in the person of Jesus, God became a human being and lived the perfect life and then died in our place there on the cross. Jesus then took the punishment for every single wrong thing you've done, everything wrong I've done. All our sins were taken by Jesus there on the cross when he died for us. And that means that if we put our faith and our trust in Jesus and if we surrender our lives to him, then we can be forgiven. And not only forgiven, but we can then be made holy. We can be made as perfect and as righteous as Jesus. We can be made perfect in God's sight. We have this then this wonderful relationship which lasts for all eternity with God himself so that we have eternal life. And the moment that we trust in Jesus, he becomes our high-level representative in heaven, standing there before God's throne. Jesus acts as our great high priest representing us there on our behalf before God. So although we still sin, even though we've trusted in Jesus, if, if you're anything like me, you'll still sin, you'll still make a mess of things, you'll still mess up. Even though we still do that, Jesus is there representing us before God the Father, reminding God that he, Jesus, has already paid the price for all our sins so that we can continue to live in relationship with God the Father. And he's an amazing high priest because he totally understands what it's like to be human. He was 100% human, just like us. The only difference with Jesus to us was that he didn't sin. Jesus understands what it's like to be human with all of the challenges of what it means to be human. He totally understands what it's like to be tempted because he was tempted in every way. So we're going to read our passage for today, which is Hebrews 5. We're going to carry on in the, in, in the, in the section, Hebrews 5, 1 to 10. If you've got a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me, uh, if, if, or you can just listen as I read the verses. For context, I'm just going to start where we finished last week. So I'm going to uh, start at verse, six, at verse 14 of chapter 4, and then we'll read right through to verse 10 of chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. book of Hebrews in New Testament that we're studying 
was written to Jews primarily who'd become Christians and lots of them were under pressure to kind of turn their back on Jesus and their Christian faith uh, and to kind of renounce it and go back to Judaism. But they were people who had become Christians just probably a few years after Jesus had, had lived here, had died and had risen again and had returned to heaven. And the Jews were, con- were used to the concept of priests representing them before God. 1400 years earlier, God had uh, commanded the people of Israel through Moses to build a temple in Jerusalem. And they had priests who would then go into the temple and symbolically represent the people before God and then symbolically represent God to the people. And when people sinned, they could go to the temple and they, they, the priest would, as, as Matt was kind of referring to earlier, symbolically transfer their sins onto an animal. The animal sacrifice would be given and that would symbolically deal with their sins. And referring to these very priests in Jerusalem, the writer in our passage says this, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people. The priest's job in the temple in Jerusalem was to represent the people to God especially when they'd sinned and had done something wrong. They would offer an animal sacrifice on their behalf. And to be able to represent them, they had to be like them. If you're going to represent somebody, you have to be like them, with all the same kind of weaknesses. So the priests were just the same as everybody else, really. In fact, the priests themselves sinned. And they needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins, not just the sins of the people. There was no difference between these, these priests and everybody else, except their family line, which qualified them to be priests. And to be a priest, you couldn't just decide you wanted to be one. It wasn't a kind of career choice. If you were in you know, Jewish high school way back 2,000 years ago, you couldn't decide, I think I'll be a high priest. That wasn't how it worked. You had to be from the priestly family. You had to be descended from Aaron, who was Moses' brother. Verse 4, talking about a, becoming a priest at the temple in Jerusalem, says this, No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Now when my dad and I had our meeting uh, with the head of U.S. Customs Intelligence, we had kind of by accident ended up being treated like some kind of high-level representatives of U.K. Customs. We got treated like royalty. We got taken out to lunch. But we were not remotely qualified to be doing that job, to be even there, really. But when Jesus took upon himself the role of our high-level representative, when he became our great high priest representing us there before God, it was because he was perfectly qualified to do so. I was completely unqualified for what I was doing. Jesus is perfectly and completely qualified to represent us before God. Not only was he perfectly qualified, he was was actually appointed by God himself. He didn't take it upon himself. God the Father appointed him to this role. Jesus was God the Son. He was God become fully human. Jesus didn't become God's son at some point in history. He was eternally God. He was God the son who then became a human being 2,000 years ago. And the author of Hebrews here is quoting from Psalm 2, which was a prophecy about Jesus written about 1,000 years before Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. So Jesus was 100% God and never ceased to be anything other than 100% God. And yet he became fully human. And so he became 100% human. He was the God-man, Christ Jesus. That meant and that means that he's able to be the perfect priest, the perfect go-between between God and man. Because he can represent God because he's God and he can represent man. He can represent us because he's a fully human being. 
Because he was God, God the Son, he was able to fully represent God to us. And if you want to know what God is like, then we just need to look at Jesus. And the very first verses of the book of Hebrews tell us that in the past, God spoke to us in all kinds of ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. If you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus as we look through the Gospels, the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life. That is what God is like. All of the kind of guessing games, all of the, the kind of different ideas get, get put to bed. When we look at Jesus, we see who God really is. And we know that he was God's son. He was who he claimed to be because he was raised from the dead. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1, speaking about Jesus, says this, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, proves that Jesus was who he said he was. The whole Christian faith hangs on Jesus' resurrection. And then having been raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit, he ascended and he returned to heaven. And he now represents those that have trusted in him throughout history before God the Father there in heaven. Jesus is the means by which we can approach God. He's the means by which we can have a relationship with God. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way that we can have a relationship with God. The way that we get right with God so that he can become our loving Heavenly Father is by putting our faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus then becomes our high-level representative. But not only is Jesus qualified to be our high-level representative, our great high priest, because he's actually the Son of God, he's also, according to verse 6, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 6 says, and he says in another place, and he's quoting from Psalm 110, he says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we're going to look at this man Melchizedek in, a, in more detail in a few weeks' time, so you don't need to kind of worry about him. But for now, all we need to note was that he was a king in the Old Testament who was also a priest. He was a king who acted as a priest, and his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness and king of peace. That's what Melchizedek's name is king of righteousness and king of peace. And at this point in Hebrews, what the writer is basically saying is that Jesus is able to be our great high priest and represent us before God because he too is the great king of righteousness and our great king of peace. Righteousness just means to live in a right way before God, in a way that's pleasing to God, the way that God wants us to live. And Jesus was the only human being who ever did that. He was the only human being who ever lived the exact way that God wanted him to. He was perfect. He was righteous. And because he was perfect and righteous, when he died on the cross, he was then able to be our perfect substitute sacrifice. So we get to be right with God. We get to have peace with God because Jesus was righteous. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God then gives us that righteousness that Jesus has, and he gives it to us. He thinks of it as belonging to us. With Without Jesus, we're God's enemies. In fact, the Bible says that we are facing his wrath. We are by our very nature objects of wrath. We're his enemies. But when we trust in Jesus and in his righteousness, then we can have peace with God through Jesus, the king of peace. We learn more about Jesus' righteousness, his right way, his perfect way of living, and his being qualified to be our great high priest, our great representative in the next verse says this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. 
During his life here on earth, he faced all the same kind of struggles and temptations as we do. And we looked at that in great detail, didn't we, last week? The one thing that was different about Jesus to you and I was that Jesus never sinned. And the greatest struggle he faced was when he was being ready for crucifixion, when he was kind of preparing himself to go to the cross, just the night before he would be hanging on that cross. And that's what this verse is referring to. Jesus was fully human, and the thought of being crucified was utterly terrifying to him, of being nailed naked to a wooden cross and lifted up and shamed and humiliated before everybody and whipped and beaten and bruised and battered and crown of thorns scrammed into his head. But it wasn't just the, the, the thought of the physical suffering that tormented and terrified Jesus so much. It was, the thought of the, it was the thought of the spiritual suffering that he would have to endure. Because as Jesus hung there on the cross, he voluntarily took all the punishment from God the Father for your sin and my sin. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. But on the cross, he actually became your sin. He became my sin. And then God the Father poured out all his wrath against our sin onto his son, the Lord Jesus. And the thought of that was utterly terrifying for Jesus. And that's why he cried out to God to save him from death. We, we actually read more about it in one of the accounts of Jesus' life, Mark's Gospel. And this was just a few hours before Jesus was crucified. And this is what it says. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. As Jesus was faced with the utter horror of what it would mean to be crucified, he cried out to his Father in heaven, asking him if there was any other possible way to deal with your sin and my sin. As someone who was fully human... Jesus was understandably tempted to kind of bail out of the horror of the death that was awaiting him. He refers metaphorically to his death and all that his death would entail as a cup. It's like a cup full of bitter and nasty drink, the drink of death, the drink of crucifixion. So yeah, he metaphorically refers to his death as a cup and he says, please take this cup away from me. But because Jesus was righteous, in other words, he always did what was right and always obeyed his Father, he submitted to the Father's will, which was that he would die for you and for me. So he cried out to God the Father in anguish, but with obedience and submission, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus submitted himself to death on a cross, knowing that it was his Father's will and that it was the only way that we, you and I, could have our sins dealt with. Verse 8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he, made this, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest. The fact that Jesus learned obedience doesn't mean that Jesus was ever disobedient. What it means is that even though he was God's son, he was given the opportunity to disobey. He could have made the choice to turn away from dying on the cross, but he chose instead to be obedient to God the Father. So he learned and demonstrated what it means to be obedient to God. And when it says that he was made perfect, it doesn't mean that he was ever less than perfect in a moral sense. The, the idea behind being made perfect is the idea of being made complete, something having been completed. And, and Jesus' preparation for being our substitute sacrifice on the cross was 
complete when he made the final choice to lay down his life on the cross in obedience to God the Father. Because Jesus lived the perfect life and never sinned, and because he always obeyed God the Father in heaven, which ultimately involved dying on the cross, he was then qualified and he was then ready to take on the role of being our high priest in heaven our high-level representative. He had proved that he was up to the job. He, was, he had proved that he was qualified. He had proved that he was ready to take on the job of representing us in heaven and to be our substitute sacrifice. It was because Jesus had passed every test that was thrown at him and yet never sinned that he was able then to die in our place representing us. We needed somebody who was sinless. We needed somebody who was perfect to make us into those clean people that we become when we trust in Jesus. Anastasia, I'm going to shame her now, not shame her, but give her some credit. At at our home group in the week, Anastasia came out with this brilliant illustration. If you're going to clean a dirty surface, you need to have a clean cloth, don't you? If you have a dirty cloth and you're trying to clean a, a dirty surface with a dirty cloth, all you end up doing is just kind of smearing the dirt around. But if you use a clean cloth, the dirt is taken from the, the dirty surface. It's transferred onto the clean cloth. And, and that's what Jesus did. He was the clean cloth that took our dirt upon himself so that we could be cleaned up, so that we could be made right, and that we could have peace with God. And because he did this, he became the source then of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What is salvation? What does eternal salvation mean? Well, salvation means being saved from God's wrath against our sin. It means being saved from an eternity and what the Bible calls hell of being punished for our sins. It means being saved from that. It means forgiveness. It means being made holy. It means having a relationship with God and it means eternal life. It means all of that and more. Jesus became the source of all of these things because of his perfect life here on earth and because of his perfect death there on the cross. And that salvation is then open to every single one of us. And probably most of us here this morning have engaged with that. We've, we've received that eternal salvation by trusting in Jesus. It's open to anybody who acknowledges that they're a sinner and asks God to forgive them, turns away from their sin, and surrenders their life to Jesus. And this morning, if you haven't done that, if you're someone who's not in that position, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never received God's eternal salvation, And that's something that you can do right now. You don't need to to go on a course. You don't need to go on some big kind of qualification. You can just put your faith and trust in Jesus right this morning by admitting and confessing, yes, I have blown it. My life is not what it should be. I have messed up. I have screwed up. I need Jesus. And by saying, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. Please take my sins from me. And I ask you now to come and live in my life, Holy Spirit. And from this moment on, I will do my best to follow you. So it means to take that step of giving our lives to Jesus. And in that process, receive forgiveness, be made holy in God's sight, have a relationship with God, and receive eternal life. And that's something you can do right in this moment. Maybe you might want to talk about it afterwards. I'd be delighted to talk with you further if that's something you wanted to explore. This is the greatest step that any human being will ever take. But how do we know if someone has really trusted in Jesus? How do we know if we've really trusted in Jesus? We've looked at this quite a bit as we've gone through Hebrews, haven't we, over the last few weeks. How do I know? How do I know if I'm really, truly, uh, genuinely uh, trusting in Jesus? Well, verse 9 says that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. It's not because they said a prayer or, or got baptized or confirmed or became a church member or anything else for that matter. 
The way that we know a person has been truly saved, has been truly born again, has received this eternal salvation, has truly trusted in Jesus, is if they are obeying him. The proof that someone has genuinely received God's salvation is if they are then obedient to Jesus. It's not being obedient to Jesus that brings us that salvation. It's simply trusting in Jesus that brings that and that does that. But if we've genuinely done that, then it will lead to us being obedient to him. And if a person isn't living a life of obedience to Jesus, or at least trying to be obedient to Jesus, then there's a strong likelihood that that person has never truly put their faith and trust in Jesus, despite what they might claim or what they might say. Jesus said these words. He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If we really love Jesus, if we've really given our lives to him and to receive his salvation, then we will do what we can, do our best to be obedient to his commands. We'll live lives that are devoted to pleasing him and serving him and doing whatever we can to live the way that he asks us to. Yes, we'll get it wrong. Yes, we'll make messes. But, you know, we'll make a mess as we're going along the way. We'll, we'll wander off from time to time, absolutely. But our, our direction of travel is no longer towards our sin. Our direction of travel is now towards Jesus. We put our eyes on Jesus. We're living his way or, or seeking to live his way rather than the way we used to. We're doing whatever we can to be obedient to Jesus and what he asks us to do. When we think of all that Jesus has done for us in leaving heaven and becoming a human being and living that perfect life and choosing to die in our place on the cross, what else can we do but then love him with our whole hearts? What else can we do but to give him everything in return? And if we really love Jesus, then we'll want to please him by being obedient to him, won't we? If we really love Jesus, then we'll want to be obedient to the things that he asks us to do, to be the people that he wants us to be. It doesn't mean we'll suddenly be perfect. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven. But it does mean that our life saying will be to please God whenever we can and however we can. And when we do mess up and when we do let him down, which we will, it's wonderful to know that Jesus is in heaven representing us before God's throne and reminding God that he Jesus has already dealt with our sins. Isn't that great? When we mess up, when we screw up, when we let God down, we know he can immediately come back and know to that throne of grace, knowing that God's throne is a throne that just overflows with grace because Jesus is there as our representative, completely, supremely qualified to be so. And he's representing us there before God the Father, speaking in our defense as an advocate. So this morning, if you've trusted in Jesus and have surrendered your life to him, are you living a life of obedience? If you've trusted in Jesus, if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus, to be a believer in Jesus, are you living a life of obedience to him? Are there things in your life right now that you would class as disobedience to God? I wonder what the Holy Spirit is perhaps highlighting in your life this morning that you maybe need to address. I wonder how God is speaking to you just in this moment. And if you do, then you can do that knowing that Jesus is your high-level representative. We can, we can address those problems, those perhaps areas of weakness and disobedience by coming back and knowing that Jesus is there, our great high priest representing us before God, so that we can approach God's throne of grace, knowing that we will receive mercy and grace in our time of need to help us in those moments. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and maybe take a few moments just to pause and reflect on all that we've said and thought about this morning.
wonder what God is saying to you this morning. What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about? Maybe to take that step for the very first time and put your faith and trust in Jesus. Or maybe areas of your life which you know are incompatible with your faith, with your salvation. Areas of disobedience. And God is just there this morning saying, come back, come on, let's get this right. Let's be obedient. He's standing there this morning waiting for us to put those things right, to once more live lives that please him. Father, we thank you this morning for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he was your and is your one and only son. Thank you that he became fully human and lived the perfect life, never sinned, and became our perfect substitute sacrifice there on the cross. Thank you that he rose again, proving that he was who he said he was, and is ascended and is sat down at your right hand right now, representing us before you. Thank you that we can come to you this morning before this amazing throne of grace, this throne of yours that just overflows with your grace and mercy. Father, help each one of us, I pray, to be obedient to you, the source of our eternal salvation. Help each one of us, Father, to live lives that honor and glorify you as we reflect on all that you've done for us. And we thank you, Father, that when we mess up, when we let you down, that you are a loving, patient Father who calls us back to yourself, who gets us, dusts us off and picks us back up again because that Jesus is there representing us because of all that Jesus has done. So we worship you this morning. We praise you. We give thanks in the name of Jesus, your wonderful Son. Amen.